This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. When you're enthusiastic and joyful, you have a lot of energy. If you're feeling depressed or down or you're stressed, it can deplete your mental joy, your mental enthusiasm, your emotional joy. You're a very unique being with many different categories, spiritual, mental, emotional, physical, domestic. Each one of those areas, you want to optimize to the best of your ability, given your circumstance. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Bussin, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn how to boost your body's energy levels. We'll discuss the treatment of rotator cuff injuries. We'll find out how to share your fantasies and desires with your partner. And lastly, we'll explore how to choose the right oven settings. But first, a little bit of business. You're a genuine health enthusiast listening to this show today. And Activation Products is your dream come true when it comes to living a very long, pain-free, energized life. Your body's craving heirloom nano and micronutrients that you'll use to elevate your whole body's health in ways you had no idea were possible. Activation makes all this possible no matter how old or young you are. The precious time, energy, and money you invest to be healthy is taken very seriously by Activation. It's their responsibility to deliver to you the most efficacious health products available in the world today. People consistently report back the most beautiful health results when they daily consume products from Activation. Treat yourself now and find out what it's like to live in a luxurious body, making every day a joy to be alive. Go to activationproducts.com and subscribe for the most important health information and products. Or call 1-866-271-7595. Ian Clark is the founder of Activation Products. When Ian was faced with life-threatening illnesses in 2004, he started a journey of natural healing that finally resulted in speed healing all of his health issues, ensuring a very long and healthy life. These discoveries are now being shared with millions of individuals to enjoy their own health journey to health freedom. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, Jamie. Having a wonderful time this year. Yeah. So we're talking about a topic that is right up your alley, because one thing I know about you is that you are a high energy person. And I'm hoping today that through this interview, our listeners will figure out how to get some extra energy into their lives. Sound like a plan? Sounds great. Yes. So what can cause low energy? What are some of the things that impact our ability to to rev it up? Well, there's multiple things, but the key things that cause the most drain of energy where people feel lethargic and they just don't have to get up and go is number one, stress. Number two, their body is not getting clean, good quality fuel because your body has to have proper nutrients to function properly. And then number three, congestion or you know the body just gets plugged up as you age because you've been consuming food breathing air there's all kinds of various factors but those are the three big ones right and and and, you know do we really need to say it you know stress is just everybody's stress levels are ramped up you know i i had myself a day yesterday and it's just you know everybody i think is nerves are frayed oh yeah people are pushed to the max and it's it's one thing to be pushed to the max when you are in a top shape. It's another thing altogether if you're being depleted or having other external things. You know, it's like an airplane. If you're flying an airplane and one thing goes wrong, you can usually handle it. Two things, you're getting in a dangerous situation. 
and three things you're likely going to crash. Yep. So people do get overwhelmed right now, and they're thankfully not flying in an airplane when it's happening. But <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, there's major contributors, and this is actually something that can be dealt with. I've learned how to deal with it and produce not just energy, but high-quality energy that's sustainable and doesn't drain you in other areas because anyone can take a stimulant and get lots of energy, Yep. but they're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Mm-hmm. So when we don't have enough energy, what happens to our body? What is the impact? Well, there's 12 different human operating systems in your body. We're not going to get into that right now, but every one of those systems relies on the other system to be running well. So like a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Yep. When one system gets compromised, you know, whether it's your digestive tract absorbing nutrients or your autonomic nervous system getting into sympathetic stress instead of getting into parasympathetic where you rest and heal and recharge, the whole body gets taxed. It's like a taxation, like you're getting uh, citations and fines as you go down the road. And, and, and that just exacerbates the overall problem. You know, when you have your liver is not working properly and it can't filter the blood that's coming off your digestive tract efficiently or it's plugged up with fatty liver syndrome or or chemicals or different molds, the liver and the, the organ function, particularly liver and kidneys, tie into your energy system overall. So those two sets of organs have to function very well. Th- those are your lifeline. And when we have proper energy in our bodies, you know, so this is sort of like the corollary, what does that mean? Why is that good? Well, your, your Krebs cycle is working right. Without getting into too much scientific detail, there's the thing called ATP. And your cells produce ATP in the mitochondria. It, each cell has millions of mitochondrial. They're like little engines. They're super nano and they're spinning at 9,500 RPMs. This is all scientifically researched. When those mitochondria are working efficiently with all the right nutrition, they're keeping clean. If you have debris going in your system, you're not detoxing properly, those little engines get jammed up. And you can't produce ATP. So ATP is the body's, you know, the, the basic heart of your system, producing all the electrical energy and the biophotons and those things that keep everything inside your body communicating right and highly active. So yeah, it's really at a cellular level, but as you have an accumulation of cells in your liver or your kidneys or your heart or your lungs, your digestive tract, wherever, uh, when they get compromised on mass, that's when you feel your body go down. Now that doesn't mean that it, it, when you're tired that you don't have energy. Many times when very healthy people who have high energy systems and where they're working well, their body will demand that they go and have a rest. And they, they need to have a rest. As soon as that healthy person has a rest, like say 30 minutes in the middle of the afternoon, they have eight hours of high level quality energy after that. If they don't get their half hour nap, because they can't for whatever reason, schedule wise, they'll drag their butt for eight hours. That's the difference. So good quality rest during the day is, is actually really important. People want to get good sleep at night, but that's a whole other topic. But today we're talking about energy through the day. And you're also looking at mental energy and emotional energy. When you're enthusiastic and joyful, you have a lot of energy. If you're feeling depressed or down or you're stressed with finances or who knows whatever is causing it, it can deplete your mental joy, your mental enthusiasm, your emotional joy. 
those things are very taxing as well. So you, you're really all of the systems. You're a very unique being with many different categories, spiritual, mental, emotional, physical, domestic, financial, environmental, and so on. Each one of those areas you want to optimize to the best of your ability, given your circumstance. Okay, I think I think we've done a really good job of sort of defining the role of energy as it's you know fundamentally interconnected with our abilities to cope, et cetera, et cetera. Let's sort of flip the page and focus on how we can get that energy up. So, is it possible to eat your energy? Uh, yeah, oh, definitely. What you consume digestively, whether it's a supplement or foods from the grocery store or wherever you're getting your fuel, you know, good clean water. That's where your fuel comes in. Right. So depending on how efficient your body is at absorbing and utilizing, because your body's a chemical factory. The problem today is that people, especially if they're eating conventional food, they don't know where that food is coming from. They don't know the fields, fields it's grown in. Does it have the right minerals? Does it have the right, right microbes? Was it harvested at the right time? You know, how conscious is that farmer? So people, you know, often will then migrate to local farmers markets as much as they can and try to find higher in quality, more nutrient dense foods and try to do organic as much as they can. Just simply because organic means you're not going to have the level of, of poisons in the food that you would normally have with conventional. And so it's in a, and it's not even an affordability thing. It's a value proposition. So people, yeah, they can get good quality food. That's one place they want to go. What we've noticed in the studies we've done over the last 15 years is since the Second World War, there's been a, a depletion of the soils because of monocropping and big agribusinesses. It's, it's just difficult sometimes to get the food you need. A lot of packaged foods don't have good nutritional quality. There may be toxicity in those things. There's poor oils. There's all kinds of mineral deficiencies. So a person needs to focus on what are the must-haves that your body demands in order to be fueled properly from an elemental standpoint, which is like your mineral matrix, and then the vitamins, like vitamin D, vitamin A, vitamin C, yeah. vitamin K2, those things. And then the natural ways of getting magnesium and selenium and zinc, you know, those elements that are crucial. Magnesium particularly is a major fuel. It's called the master mineral because it, it feeds 330 different biochemical functions in your body. And when people are low in magnesium, a myriad of different things start showing up as they age, especially. So, though, you know, it's, it's easy to bring your fuel levels up and keep clean fuel, but you have to have the knowledge around it. So what are, what are some of the things, what are some of the nutritional supplements where you just sort of, you were listing some of the vitamins that you feel are necessary to help sort of get that energy, your, your energy levels up? Well, the reason I mentioned the, the AD, the, the K2, and the C is because your body demands them. But the problem is when people go out in the market and they try to find their supplements, they, they don't know there's massive difference in quality. So some vitamins will have like a three-hour half-life in your body and then they're gone. Or some vitamins won't even have anything in the bottle at all. It's so depleted out. Other ones will have very intense quality with 72-hour half-life. And then they completely notice the difference. And also, I've, I've got to mention vitamin Bs. Vitamin B complexes are very important. Now, when it comes to food source, uh, I learned a lot about that because we ended up going deep into foods themselves. Like, so for example, seed oils or algae or uh, transdermal things that you can put into your skin. Those areas, we, you know, we, we found out there's a ridiculous level of quality 
from high, high, high quality to the very lowest to the actually stuff that will harm you when you consume it. So we figured, okay, if we're going to do something, we're going to do it at the top level, period. Because otherwise, why bother? Like, let's just do the very best. So we learned that there's there's certain microalgaes. The top one that we found is called Oceans Alive. And then there's oil. So when you press seed oil, you want to make sure you're not damaging the seeds themselves in the process. Because many processes, when people are making things, damage them. And you want to have the oil undamaged because the nutritional profile in each oil you know, like example, everyone lately has heard about black seed oil, and that's also known as black cumin oil. It's really black seeds of black cumin. Well, inside that seed is such a broad spectrum of nutrients that's carried in with the oil that in the Middle East, they call it the, you know, cures everything except for death. Well, that, that's a little bit extreme example. Nonetheless, it has a wonderful way to go in and cleanse and nourish your system. So if you take the the black human oil that we produce and you put it on some glue, like say you peel a label off a bottle and it leaves that glue level, that glue film. Uh, yep. You put it on there, 15 minutes later, that glue is, is basically soft. You can wipe it off with a cloth. Hmm. So oil cleanses and nourishes your system. It gets the gunk out of your body. And every cell in your body, they say there's 100 trillion cells or whatever, it doesn't matter. Each one of those cells has a lipid membrane. And that lipid means oil. So if you've been eating various different packaged foods that have damaged oils in them or foods cooked where it damages the oil, your body's going to put up with that because it has to have those oils, but it doesn't want the low quality oils. When you introduce, purposely introduce perfectly undamaged, perfectly pressed oils, your body has an intelligence that will purge all the wrong oils as soon as it gets, as soon as it gets a hold of the really good stuff. And it's like doing an oil change in your whole system. So that means that your cells are now going to absorb nutrients much more efficiently and delete waste more efficiently. And, you know, organs like your liver have to be cleaned out all the time. So it goes and the oils help to cleanse the liver because it's always filtering out all the harmful stuff out of the blood that comes through the digestive tract. Plus the liver is getting rid of all kinds of other toxins and chemicals. It needs support. So when you give it these oils... All your organs use it like this, but particularly the liver, to cleanse and nourish itself. So if you just think about those two words all day, cleanse and nourish, you're going to get more and more and more high quality energy. And then when you go and have a coffee or have a stimulant with caffeine in it, you're not taxing your body because you've got the fuel that is already there to answer the request for energy. Otherwise, you're going to be burning up your own body's energy, which is like your brainstem fluids, your, your bone marrow. Your body will deplete itself because it's going to get the energy from somewhere because it, it has an order for energy. So if you place an order for energy, there's a bill attached. And, but, but if you've already paid the bill ahead of time by flooding your body with high-quality nutrients, you're in a much better flow. So what are some of the things we can do on a daily basis? Well, like I can't emphasize more. The daily is cleanse and nourish. Bring in things in, into your body, like the oils that are going to help to move things through and purge. They also carry nutrients to bring the quality micro and nanonutrients and the elements that are going to keep your body communication going well and you can produce ATP energy. Plus, get that nap in the middle of the day. Get that 30-minute nap. Even if you don't even, if your body's not even telling you to do it, if you got the time, just drop down for 30 minutes and close your eyes. You're saving 40% of your body's energy by just closing your eyes. That's how much bandwidth your brain and your eyes are using up. Hmm. There's a, an element or a molecule that I've been hearing about, and I, I was hoping you could help us with it. It's called superoxide 
dismutase. Am I pronouncing that right? Oh, yeah, yeah, SOD, superoxide dismutase. It is in the marine phytoplankton we have in the highest level in a plant form on the earth. It's in this testrosemus. Uh, that's a different strain of marine phytoplankton. So what it does, it comes in and removes, to put it frankly, people are rusting. That's, that's the easiest way to put it. So that which is corrupting your body is removed by superoxide dismutase more than anything else. People have heard of antioxidants, of course. Sure, but this yeah. is the king and queen oh. of antioxidants. And, and it goes to work at a much more efficient rate than anything else. So that's a daily intake. That's an automatic thing with the Oceans Alive. Oh, I see. So that's part of the Oceans Alive product. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad that you're back. You were with us in, in 2020 and you're back with us in 2021. And, and as a special gift to our listeners, they can enjoy $10 off of any order of $30 or more at activationproducts.com by using the code energy 2021 at checkout so thank you very much for that and my pleasure jamie it's it's, yeah we want to serve as many people as we can with the highest quality energy supplements they can get and thank you again for coming on the show we look forward uh, to hearing back from you real soon very good okay jamie thank you we have to take a short break but when we return we'll discuss the treatment of rotator cuff injuries on the tonic the tonic is brought to you by purely natural Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Centre is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy, and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage, and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory, plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments, and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Aaron Boynton, or Dr. B, is an orthopedic surgeon with a unique approach to musculoskeletal pain, blending both the art and science of medicine. As the first female orthopedic surgeon to work in the MLB and the NHL, she has extensive experience dealing with overuse or wear and tear injuries. Welcome back to the show, Doctor. Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you too, Jamie. It's great to be here. We're going to discuss rotator cuffs today, and uh, fortunately, I've never torn my rotator cuff, but unfortunately, I have definitely come close with some of the exercises that I've done. And and when you do it, it can really mess you up because we need our shoulders for so much, right? Oh, I'll tell you, this is one of the most debilitating problems. And I I think one of the worst parts of it is the inability to sleep. So it's definitely something that I I see commonly in my practice, and I'm very grateful that I can help people get through it. Okay, so for those who don't know, what is a rotator cuff? So a rotator cuff is a group of four 
muscles in their tendons. A tendon attaches a muscle to bone, which surround the shoulder, and they're responsible for keeping the shoulder joint properly lined up. Okay. And I know how I injured my rotator cuff, but what do you see? How do you see these injuries occurring? Well, they're most commonly a degenerative wear and tear problem, and they sneak up on you. So people playing sports, repetitive overhead activities, people who work in construction, bricklayers, guys that are hammering a lot, doing repetitive work at shoulder height are very prone to injuring their rotator cuff. And the interesting thing is, is that the tendon is like a fabric. So you imagine the threads that are in your, say, your jeans. Mm -hmm. When you're doing these repetitive movements, the little thread can become overloaded and tear. Mm -hmm. So you maybe have one thread that tears when you have one episode of a tennis game. And then these tears can accumulate so that eventually you get to a threshold where the muscle and the tendon can't tolerate the load. And then all of a sudden you make one move Mm -hmm. and you get pain and you can't move and you think, oh my gosh, like lights out pain. What have I done? So people think it's just one instance where they've torn the rotator cuff, but it's actually an accumulation of activity. Right. And, and, you know, when I think of rotator cuff, I think of pitchers like in baseball or tennis players with a lot of overhand motion. I know I did it. I injured my rotator cuff by lifting weights sort of cross body above my head. And it was sort of an awkward motion and my supporting muscles just weren't ready for it when I did my injury. That's a common one. And, you know, I'll hear people like they reach into the back seat to pull out a heavy briefcase yeah, and then or reaching overhead into a luggage rack uh, on an airplane, even though we don't go on airplanes anymore. So I guess we're saving rotator cuffs now. But <laughs> Yes, yeah, it's um, the silver lining of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> The dog pulls on the leash, you know, that kind of thing. Is it possible to tear your rotator cuff and not know it? You know, that's one of the crazy things. Yes, it is. And I think what happens is because the collagen fibers in the tendon can just kind of slowly, one at a time, uh, break, the other muscles around the shoulder compensate. So you're not even aware that this is happening. And it's very common for me to see, say, somebody who's gotten in a car accident and they have some pain in their neck and radiating into their shoulder and Mm -hmm. they'll have an ultrasound and they find this rotator cuff tear and they had no clue that they had any injury or problem in their shoulder. And the tear didn't happen in the accident because... You know, they just, it was a little whiplash thing, so they didn't even stress the shoulder. So it's really kind of shocking to me how parts of our body can wear out and we can compensate. I guess that's the beauty. We compensate. Yeah. So as an expert, how do you diagnose a rotator cuff tear? So there's the typical history, the location of the pain. It's usually in the upper outer aspect of the arm. Pain that's aggravated by activity becomes progressively worse over time. And then we'll do some special tests. I will examine the range of motion and strength, and I will specifically stress the muscle and the tendon that I think is affected, and that usually causes pain. So we're not very nice as doctors. You come in with a poor shoulder that's sore, and we go and stress it even more. And so I may find weakness or pain with a certain resisted movement, and then I'll get an x-ray and an ultrasound or an MRI to confirm the diagnosis. Right. Okay. And, and once the diagnosis of a rotator cuff is made, how do you treat it? 
Well, the most important thing is to really reverse why you were overloading the tendon in the first place. So you need to change, again, change how you're moving. Mm -hmm. And this often has to do with your posture. Mm -hmm. Uh, Believe it or not, how your neck and upper back posture will affect the way that you use the rotator cuff muscles. So I often recommend exercises to correct your, your posture of your neck and your upper back, change the position of your shoulder blade, and then we start gently with isometric exercises to waken up the rotator cuff muscles that are intact, and eventually we strengthen. And I would say about uh, 90% of individuals will respond to this kind of rehabilitation program. Yeah, for me, what happened was, first of all, I stopped doing those particular moves that were causing pain, but I tried to strengthen the muscles around it. And there was some, there was a point where I was working up to 100 push-ups in a row, and a good friend of mine who owned a gym gave me some small muscle exercises to do collateral to the push-ups that I was doing. And that seemed to make a difference when I was putting a lot of stress on my shoulders. That was excellent advice. The rotator cuff muscles are they're stabilizing muscles, and there are other yeah. stabilizing muscles in our core. Yeah. And so when you get all of the little guys working together, when you go to do a big movement like a push-up, yeah. if you are engaging those little stabilizers, then it'll make your push-up more effective, and you then are protecting the small guys, so to speak. Right. And also, and I've advocated for this on the show before, I've been rowing and that has really changed my posture and strengthened my back. So I would recommend that to anybody who's capable of doing it, I would try rowing as well. Rowing is a great exercise because so much of what we're doing, we're collapsing forward. We're, you know, we do a lot of pushing exercises. So the pulling and rowing, and I often tell people who have rotator cuff problems to swim the backstroke. Yeah. People tend to do a lot of front crawl, but by then reversing so that you're using the muscles at the back of your body, you change how you're loading your shoulder and you give the rotator cuff a chance to settle down. Gosh, I should get you into my office. Right. You'd be able to help, You'd be able to help everybody. Get I'll, I'll be your poster boy. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the treatments that are either collateral to building the muscles or for more extreme cases, obviously. You hear of people taking cortisone shots. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think judicious use of cortisone can be very beneficial, but you don't want to be getting a cortisone injection every week. The purpose of the cortisone is to decrease inflammation that is associated with the tendon tear. It's not going to allow the tendon to heal. And in fact, if you get too many cortisone injections, you can alter the quality of the tendon in a bad way and make it harder to repair or make it more prone to tearing. So we say you can have three cortisone injections, and obviously that's going to depend a little bit on the timing of things. But a good cortisone injection to decrease the pain to allow you to do your exercises, I'm all for it. Just getting a cortisone injection and that's it. I'm not for it. Yeah, and the effects only last for a limited period of time, right? You're probably looking at a couple of months with that. Exactly, exactly. And this is one of the problems I see. People feel great. They get the cortisone yeah. injection. They don't do their exercises, and they come back and they say, here, fix me. I don't, I don't want to do the exercises. Give uh, me another injection. I've never heard of a doctor allowing more than two or three shots. Are, are there doctors out there that will keep giving cortisone? Unfortunately, there are a few. Okay. There are a few. That is not cool. All right. Let's talk about physical therapy. What sort of regimen is available for those who have a rotator cuff that they're recovering from? 
So I think the therapist can offer some benefits. Uh, They can give you modalities, laser, ultrasound. These modalities will increase the blood flow to the area, which can bring in healing factors and help decrease inflammation. They can do ART or active release therapy to loosen up the capsule and loosen up the muscle and the tendons themselves so that your range of motion is better, so that the supporting muscles that we've been talking about can function a little bit better. And then they can supervise you with exercises. So the hands-on work that the therapists do can improve your mobility and make it easier for you to do your exercises, but it's so crucial that you do your homework and that you do awaken those little muscles that we've been talking about in conjunction to what the therapist is doing for you. Yeah, I mean, and these exercises are simple with with very lightweight. This may seem weird, but like even just going on your tummy and doing what's called a Superman, which is sort of raising your legs and raising your arms can help with the rotator. So we've gone through all the other types of treatment, but then there's one that you specialize in and that is surgery. So once you tear your rotator cuff, is it necessary to have surgery? The answer here really depends on your age, your activity level, your general health. If you're young and really active, I would encourage you to consider getting your rotator cuff repaired if you're symptomatic. The reason is, is that the tear can get progressively bigger over time. So if you're 40 and you have a, we're talking full thickness rotator cuff tears. To clarify, there are some that are only partial thickness and those I don't think need an operation. Mm -hmm. Really focus on non-surgical treatment. But for full thickness tears, we know that these have a propensity to grow over time. If you don't have any pain and you've got a full thickness tear, then I recommend watching the tear very carefully with uh, an ultrasound to make sure it's not getting bigger um, because it's, it's likely to either get bigger or to become symptomatic at some point in your life. So surgery to repair the tendon back to the bone is very successful. So if you're young, I believe you should go for it. Okay, just so we're all on the same page, what, what's young and what's old? That's changed now that I've yeah. got to be in my 60s. 40. 40s young. Okay. Well, I guess I'm young at heart then. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jamie. It's been fun. That was Dr. Aaron Boyton. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Fine & Associates are family lawyers who dedicate themselves to dealing with separation and divorce matters every day. They specialize in custody, access, child and spousal support, and division of family property. It's their mission to resolve all issues amicably. But, if necessary, they're prepared to go to court and fight strongly on your behalf. Fine & Associates family lawyers are committed to achieving the results that you deserve to help you move forward with your life. If you're going through a separation or divorce, Call 416-650-1300 to speak to Lauren Fine for a free initial phone consultation. For more information, visit torontodivorcelaw.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. 
Carlisle Jansen is a sex therapist and founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality store and workshop center. She's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself, and you can find her educational videos and TED Talk on carliljansen.com. She can be contacted at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show. Happy New Year, etc., etc. How are you? Yes, thank you. I'm well, thanks, and Happy New Year to you. How are you? I'm doing well. Brand new year, brand new opportunities. We're going to talk about exploration in a way, aren't we, today? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's a specific kind of exploration, but yeah, that's a great thing to do in relationships. So discussing what's in your head, your fantasies and your desires, it's a difficult thing to do, even with somebody that you've been with for a long time. Why is it so hard to do? Well, and you know, what I find interesting is that sometimes it's harder to do it with somebody that you've known for a long time, yeah. especially if you've got like, you know, a mortgage or rent payments together, you've got kids, and there's a lot more at stake. So it's hard because we're really vulnerable, yep. and that we have to face that person hopefully, most of us forever. And so knowing what our secrets are, knowing what our fantasies are can be really threatening for lots of us. So it's hard because we feel vulnerable. We're afraid that our partner's going to judge us, that it's going to affect other aspects of the relationship that might be really positive. And then we have lots of judgment of ourselves. We might feel self-conscious, like what kind of person wants a rape fantasy or wants to dominate a partner or wants to pop balloons while they're having sex? (laughs) Or, you know, and we think that it's only like weird or creepy people who have the kinds of fantasies that we have. And, you know, to your point, you know, when you know somebody very well, you can almost guess what their reaction might be, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like what their, you know, their comfort zones, number Mm -hmm. one, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, you know, if you've been with somebody a long time, it's like, well, why didn't you raise this, what, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? You know, we've been together for a while. Why is this coming up now, right? You know? Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And that's a good question. And sometimes it's that we were embarrassed by it. Sometimes it's that it wasn't the right time. Sometimes it's I tried to put it out of my head. Or sometimes it like it just came up. I saw a movie and I saw it. I was like, that looks really hot. Why is it so important to do, though? Right. At the end of the day, it's a good idea to do it because, you know, the keys to a good, long lasting, optimal sexual relationship is taking risks being transparent, being vulnerable. This has come up in several studies, in particular by Dr. Peggy Klein-Platt in Ottawa. It's not about how many sex toys you have or how many positions. So it's important for us to take those risks. It's also a good way to develop closeness. It can help us build trust. And, you know, the reality is that we're not going to get our needs met if we don't speak up about what they are. Right. right? We, yeah. we can't fault our partner for not doing these fantasies if we never share them with them. Okay. So let's say we're contemplating having a discussion with our partner. What are some of the things that we should consider before we open up? So one thing that I think is important to do is to really accept your own fantasy first. You have to come to terms with it. If you're embarrassed by it, unless you have a really, really compassionate partner who you know can help you through it, it's good for you to accept and understand it first. Mm -hmm. The other thing is to reflect on, like, how are your other discussions? Does your partner engage well when you talk about finances, other aspects of sex, you know, doing the dishes and chores, that kind of thing? So does your partner really listen? Are they able to hear what you want. What else is going on in your relationship? Are you having discussions in, you know, a fight about the kids or about finances? What's going on in your partner's life? Did they just, you know, lose their job or are they really stressed out about work? 
so those are some things that you should sort of consider beforehand. And mm-hmm. then when you bring it up, it's important to emphasize, like, there's no pressure. I'm not saying this is a fantasy that I need you to do or I want you to do. This is not a demand. I'm just I'm just sharing this with you. I just want to tell you about what something that's that's come up and that's important to me. I'm sure this comes up in your practice. What happens when you share a desire or a fantasy and, and you're sort of met with indifference or rejection or like how do how do you deal with that? Well, it's really, really hard. Um, and that's where sometimes people who have fantasies might have a community. Maybe they've researched online, you know, people who have similar fantasies so they know that there isn't something wrong with them so that they can kind of comfort themselves if, if their partner isn't able to empathize or understand. Sometimes that means that we need to educate them. But it's really hard when somebody who, for most of us, is the closest person in our lives doesn't accept that part of us. And so that's why, you know, you want to think a little bit about sharing it, but also the person receiving it, even if it's not your thing, to still tell your partner that you accept who they are, even if you're not so into that fantasy. And saying like, you know, it doesn't really turn me on, but, you know, tell me what about it turns you on. Maybe, you know, there's a different way that we can accommodate this, or there's somehow I can understand you better so that you're not getting down on what your partner's fantasy is, but you're not making any commitments. And you can be honest also about your own difficulty with it, that it's about you and not about your partner. Okay, that's good advice. And let's talk about the process of sort of getting these ideas and and some tips you might have for putting these ideas out there. And I'd like you to couch it in terms of not only the person expressing the desire, but the person who's hearing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, get a sense of, as I said, you know, comfortable with your own desires. Don't disclose in the bedroom because you don't want then every time you go into the bedroom or that's where most people have sex for it to sort of be prominent in your mind. You know, really don't drop it on your partner, you know, in the middle of breakfast when they're going to work um, or, you know, after a hard day, maybe like just say, you know what, I've got something I want to chat about is now a good time or when is a good time or even being more explicit. Hey, you know, let's have a time when we can talk about our fantasies. Like, let's do it on Friday night over dinner. Mm -hmm. But not with the kids. Not Not with the kids. No, not with the kids. You know, I want to expand our sex life. I'm feeling a little shy. You know, can I email them to you? Can we talk about them? Or you could even just sort of couch it in like, hey, I thought one thing to spice things up would be to swap, you know, fantasy ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, how does that fit for you? So, you know, bringing it up, being really conscious about when you want to do it, the timing. And then the other thing I think is important is to be clear about your intention. So, you know, is this like, I really need to do this? Or is it, I want to pretend to do this? Or I just want to share something that came into my mind so that I can feel accepted and I can get it out of my head? Is it that I want to explore the idea with you? Or is it just that I want to hear a fantasy and I want to share my fantasy? And, and some fantasies are best left as fantasy. They don't all translate well into life. Yeah, you, you don't have to act on every idea that's in your head, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes you can pretend or sometimes it's just about saying like, wow, I have this fantasy. That's kind of interesting. I don't think I'd ever want to do it, but what do you think? Right. 
right? So the other thing is sometimes it's easier to email some of your ideas rather than have somebody sitting right in front of you looking at their response. Or I often like talking side by side so that you're not staring at each other and that you can be either on a walk or sitting on the couch and that way you can have sort of pauses and people can think about it and sort of digest a bit, but you don't have to come up with a response right away. You know, you you come on the show frequently and you talk about like committing these things to writing. And to me, that's always the scariest part. Like when I hear you say that, for me personally, I could never commit these ideas to I'm happy to explore them and have discussions. Mm. Naomi and I have discussions all the time about all sorts of different things. But when it's personal, I find it a real challenge to put it into writing. But I think Mm. you've said before that there's, you know, people who just feel more comfortable writing it and not saying it. So I I don't know. Maybe that's it. And that's why we have options, right? I mean, I think generally we think about, you know, that we have to have sit down and have a chat. And, you know, for someone like you, that works really well. But for someone who's really shy, who's not very confident, who's really nervous about their partner's response, yeah. it's a little bit like sending that email that's really hard to send. It's like you just sort of, you write it and then you're like, okay, send, you know, and then it's out there and then you can deal with the next part. But, you know, it's, I find it works for a fair number of people, but mm-hmm. it's definitely not for everybody. Okay. So if somebody were thinking about discussing their, their fantasies with their partner, are, are there resources available that they can go to if what we've discussed today isn't enough to get them out and yeah, doing it? absolutely. I mean, the internet has lots and lots of resources, lots of articles. There's lots of people who say your fantasy is bondage, right? You can find ways that people have done it. You can find what turns people on about it. And so you can learn a bit more about ways that will turn on you and ways that you feel comfortable exploring it. Certainly erotica books, are a great way to explore even a lot of people say I don't even know what my fantasies are okay so read some erotica I find it's a little bit better than visual porn because you can leave a little more to your imagination and so you can put yourself into it a little bit better you can shift the story a little bit more easily than when all of your senses are engaged Mm -hmm. so read some erotica to get some ideas on how people do it what might turn you on and then there's a book called The Ultimate guide to sexual fantasy that will walk you through some step-by-step on how to bring this to life. Well, that sounds like amazing advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's always a pleasure. And you're going to come back again next month, yes? I will see you next month. Fantastic. That was Carlisle Jansen. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. 
This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Carolyn Tanner Cohen is the owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, you can visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you? Hi, Jamie. Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Today, we're going to talk about how to cook in your oven, which seems like basic and rudimentary, except every now and then I need to be reminded of, you know, all the temperatures and ways you can cook and the proper ways to prepare certain things, even though I've been cooking for, for years and years and years. Yeah, totally. You know, Jamie, I teach a lot of cooks, as you know, yep. and a lot of new cooks and old cooks. Mm-hmm. And by that, I don't mean age. Yep. Okay. And every single cooking class, which is almost daily, I get asked about some sort of oven question, oven setting, oven use something about the oven. So I have become somewhat of a lecturer about ovens. All right. Well, let's get right to it. So what what do we need to know? What are the basics of using your oven? Let's start off with three features. Okay. Mm -hmm. So how does the oven actually work? So a regular bake setting on the oven, the oven, the heat comes from the bottom and it rises. Yep. Whereas the opposite, a broiler, so the oven heats from the top, there's a broiler, there's an element that you could actually see turn red, yep. and think of it like an upside-down barbecue. Yep. Okay? And then there's something in most ovens today called convection. Mm-hmm. Okay? That will interact with any setting on your oven, so broil, bake, or roast, let's call it. Yep. Okay? So yeah, but, but, but convection, yeah. just to explain what it is, there's a fan that circulates oh, the air. Oh, we're going to talk big time about convection. That's yeah. serious. We could jump right in there if you wanted to. I, I, convection is my favorite feature. I almost exclusively cook with convection. Okay, and I don't. So let's actually, I want to have this little banter back and forth with okay. you about why I don't. But let's first talk about what it means. Yep. So all the convection means is that there's a fan blowing in the back. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. So think of it like this. You walk outside, it's minus 10 degrees. Okay. Mm-hmm. The weather person says to you, but it has a minus 15 with the windshield. Yep. Okay. So you walk outside, the actual temperature of your oven or the actual temperature outside is minus 10 or 350 degrees. When you throw in convection, the wind is blowing. Mm-hmm. So you suddenly have a wind chill. Therefore, you, as a human being outside, will feel colder, even though the temperature might be minus 10. You feel like it's minus 15. Mm -hmm. So the same thing happens with your food. It feels hotter, and it gets wind burned. That's not a negative thing. Your food will get extra roasty on the top because it's windy in there. Okay, so I do a lot of roasting in the oven. and I you should be using convection. I do use convection. And the one rule of thumb is that the temperatures aren't the same. So if you are going to use convection and the recipe calls for 350, every oven's going to be different. My oven, there's about a 20 degree difference. So so I just know to turn it down by 20 degrees. Right. And then everything's easy peasy. So that's exactly it. You want to compensate for your wind chill. Yeah, exactly. So if you're cooking cookies, if your recipe is 350 for your cookies, you should drop it by 25 degrees, which is 325. A lot of newer ovens will automatically do that when you set it on convection. But you also need to know that your cookies are going to cook faster or your roast is going to cook faster. The same way your skin is going to get 
sort of wind burn faster if there wasn't the wind chill. Well, okay? you know, here's the thing, though. I would say, you know, every brand is different. And like anything, the more you use it, the more you understand the quirks of how your appliance works. It's like a yes. bar. It's like barbecues that have hot spots or, you yes. know, like if you use it regularly, you know it and you can compensate for it. Exactly. Exactly. So when should we use convection and when should we not use convection? Okay. So it depends who you're talking to. I mean, Naomi would say never use convection. She's like you because she does a lot of baking. And when you're baking desserts, she doesn't like using convection. When I'm roasting, I use a lot of convection. Right. Exactly. So when you're roasting, you definitely want convection. 100%. Because you want your food to get that sort of back to the wind analogy, that roast it, that wind burn feel on your food. Yeah, you got crispier skin for your poultry or, you know. Like it's, but you yeah. don't want to cook a souffle on convection because right. it's aggressive heat. So think of it also that because it's windy in there, it's a more aggressive. Yep. If you're cooking multiple racks of food, so whether, you know, if we just celebrated Christmas, so you're making like a bunch of things at Christmas time in your oven, you are using your oven for multiple things in the oven at the same time. Yep. You're going to need convection because you need the oven to heat evenly and all the racks of food to get sort of windy and the wind gets, yep. the heat gets blown around, it'll heat everything evenly. Because normally the heat just comes from the bottom. So if you don't have the convection on your oven, only the bottom rack that is in there first will get cooked evenly. The other two racks will not. So if you're cooking multiple racks of cookies, you definitely want convection. But if you're cooking a single cake or a single bread, or even frankly a single pan of fish, let's call it. Mm-hmm. I don't use convection, but something that will benefit from getting a little bit of wind burn or benefit from getting crispy on the edges. Convection is your way to go. I would say one last point is if you're mm-hmm. cooking something that has juices. So like if you're cooking yeah. a nice chicken, right? Yeah. And you have vegetables in there and you yeah. want the juices from the chicken because the poultry will release its juices into the air. And if it's blowing around, that means those juices might find their way onto the vegetables you're cooking. So if you want that to happen, then convection will help that happen in the oven, whether or not they're in the same pan. But on the contrary, yeah, it'll increase the speed of evaporation. True. You have to have extra yeah. fluid. There's no question. Right. But you're right. It is a good idea. And the, the blowingness of the juices is a good idea. But just watch it. You have to just be a little bit mindful. Right. You have to know your oven also. So, so let's move on from convection and talk about, you know, when is it appropriate to bake, broil, roast, etc. So again, baking heats from the bottom. So most of your cooking is done like that. If you want something more of a, like a barbecued feel, yeah. broiler is your friend. Yep. And usually I cook with using the rack that's second from the top position. I would love to use the top rack, but it's a little bit too close to my element. And when you're broiling, you may want to crack it open a bit because it's intense heat. So you, you don't want it to smoke and set off the alarm so that if you open your oven a bit, that's usually the way the broiler works. Yes, it is a good idea, although you don't really need to in the new oven because the fans are better. Fair enough. But some people still like to and they feel more comfortable. My smoke alarm goes off when I tell it that I'm going to start cooking. Yeah, I come downstairs to start going to my kitchen, my smoke alarm goes off. I hear you. <laughs> okay, so now what is the feature of roast? Some people's ovens have, some people don't. Mm-hmm. So it means that the heat is cooking mostly from the bottom, and then every once in a while, the broiler comes on, mm-hmm. and it says hello, and it shuts off. And then it comes on and says hello, and then it shuts off. So you're going to get like a little bit of a crispy feel to the top of your roast. So it is quite a nice feature if you do have that feature mm-hmm. yep. on your oven. Now, some people have a feature that they don't even know they have. Which is okay? what? 
took me four years to discover it on my oven, a proof feature. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't know if you have that or if you've ever used it. I haven't used it, but I don't do much baking. Okay, so if you're making bread and you want to rise your dough, yep. and then once you shape it and you want to rise that, and you have a proof feature, it's incredible, okay? Mm-hmm. What it does is it sets your oven to an under 100 degree Fahrenheit mark. Mm-hmm. So it's somewhere between 70 and 100, and most people's ovens can't go that low. So in the old days, what I used to do to rise my bread or proof my bread I would turn my oven on to whatever temperature, it doesn't matter, 350 or so, for five minutes, shut the oven off, and my oven, and then keep the light on in the oven. And then my oven was usually around 70 to 100 degrees, and it would slowly go, the temperature would drop. But it was the perfect temperature for proofing my dough or proofing my bread. Mm-hmm. So now I have an oven that has that feature, and it's amazing for bread rising. So if you have it, use it. How do you do your braising? Because a lot of you, like this time of year, there's a lot of like connective tissue type meats that are being stewed. So what do you do? Okay. So what I do is a few things. Now we're getting into a little bit different of conversation, which I love, but you want to make sure, first of all, the liquid in your heavy braising pan or pot comes a third way up your meat. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then you need a heavy duty lid. So whether it's a couple layers of foil or an actual lid on your Dutch oven or your French oven. And then I like to keep my oven at a low temperature, 325 or lower. Mm -hmm. So anywhere between like 275 and 325. Mm -hmm. And I set my oven rack closer to the bottom because it's a big pot. And low and slow, low and slow, low and slow and heavy duty lid so that you um, don't lose any liquid in there and your meat or chicken can cook or even potatoes, frankly, can cook with the benefit of its own steam. Good idea. Okay, so let's move on to something else. Yep. This is always a tricky one for me, and I get it wrong all the time, and that is reheating. Are you a low reheater or a high reheater? Well, it depends on what I'm reheating, and it depends on how many things I'm reheating. Okay. So my general rule that I tell people all the time is reheat everything at the same time. Yep. Okay? Mm-hmm. Whatever your oven can be, go for it. Okay, so it means that if you're reheating a chicken and your green beans and your this and your that, just put it a temperature somewhere in the middle and reheat it till it's hot. What's middle Sometimes though? You can... What's your sense of middle though? What's my sense of middle? About 350. Okay. Okay. But if I want to keep something very crispy, I go for a blast of hot heat. So okay. 400 to 450. Mm-hmm. If I want to keep things at a, and maintain it at a warm temperature, I go 300 or 275. Okay. Like, in other words, it's already hot. Let's leave it in there. We have time for one last tip. What do you want to tell us about the oven? One last tip. Okay. Recipes that are written for regular bake setting, unless specified, okay, mm-hmm. I would use regular bake setting, or you could use convection, but make sure you drop your heat by 25 degrees and shave off about 15% of the overall cooking time. So if your cookies say 12 minutes on 350, 325 for 10 minutes. But know your oven, and it's much more important to go by look and smell than anything else. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Will you come back again next month? Absolutely. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Ian Clark, Dr. Aaron Boynton, Carlisle Jansen, and Carolyn Tanner-Cohen. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. 
find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The January-February issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss how to stop a panic attack, lockdown fitness trends, and what the pandemic has taught us about the restaurant industry. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.